Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. Every day, each of us is highly dependent on energy to live our lives. Whether it's powering up the device that you're listening to this podcast on, making your morning coffee, streaming your favourite programmes or sending work emails, none of this is possible without energy. But how many of us realised, prior to the war in Ukraine, just how intertwined our energy needs are with the geopolitical order of the planet? Many parts of the world, including much of Europe, depend on another country, such as Russia, to meet their energy requirements. And if conflicts arise, those supplies could be turned off. And while we know we need to reduce our fossil fuel use to tackle the climate crisis, the transition to renewables is not happening at the pace needed to avoid the worst effects of global warming. My name is Julie Weldon, and in this episode, we are going to look at how we got to this point and what the future holds. We will discuss the importance of oil and gas to the political, economic and social order of the world, including Russia. We'll also look at what China's doing to move away from its past reliance on coal to power its economic growth. And we'll explore what are the obstacles for many countries to transition away from fossil fuels onto renewable energy sources. We'll be talking to Dr. Thomas Freulich, Kalina Damianova, and Isabel Hilton, all of whom are part of the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy here at King's. Let's start by hearing about the link between energy and political power from Kalina, a PhD candidate at King's Russia Institute and a graduate teaching assistant in the departments of political economy and European and international studies. Energy is directly and indirectly part of all aspects of our lives, as access to energy resources is unevenly distributed in the world naturally they create a natural uneven distribution of power as well so there is an intrinsic link between uh, the the energy resources and the power structures that we have uh, at the moment and when it comes to russia the revenue from the export of oil and gas that is usually referred to as rent is a key source of income for its federal budget making up more than 30 percent of it last year and it has much wider implications too. For example, Gazprom, the company mostly owned by the state, provides gas to domestic consumers at discounted prices. It's brought gas to remote regions of Russia, and it contributes to various socio-economic and political projects. To a large extent, Gazprom is able to do that because it sells gas on export markets where the prices are higher. Uh, in other words, the company has a central role in redistributing the external income to different domestic initiatives. That way, the rent has become a binding element in the overall social, political and economic uh, order in Russia. It alleviates some of the economic burden away from the domestic consumers. It allows the political regime to fund social, political uh, and economic uh, projects and even benefits to some extent elites enrichment through uh, these indirect sources of resource rent redistribution. So in many aspects, resources in energy resources in Russia are linked with power 
so they're they're interlinked with power or maybe the other way around power is linked to uh, energy resources uh, domestic and political uh, domestic political and economic power as well as the role uh, russia's role on international stage uh, as 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 an energy exporter she highlights how russian gas is the main source of domestic energy and there are plans to extend this to regions currently lacking gas infrastructure plus it's central to russia's strategy to adapt to climate action Domestically, Russia uh, has been far from implementing a comprehensive decarbonization strategy. Uh, but from what has been planned so far, we can see that the uh, substitution of domestic consumption of oil and coal with that of gas seems to be central uh, to Russia's attempt to decrease harmful emissions. That's because usually gas is considered to be relatively less polluting, cleaner than coal and oil, for example. Furthermore, it plays a key role in Russia's attempt to adapt to uh, in, in terms of its export strategy. Hydrogen from natural gas, through, especially through low emission technologies such as methane pyrolysis, is planned to be the core of Russia's energy export strategy and its adaptation to the changing global energy markets. Therefore, I think we can say that while oil is very important for Russia's income now and maybe in the near future, its role is likely to gradually decrease, whereas the importance of gas is expected to be growing further. As we've discussed, the war in Ukraine and subsequent sanctions have revealed how many parts of the world rely on other countries for their energy needs. It was this that in some ways made the invasion a surprise, as Kalina explains, because many believed that energy interdependency would lessen the chance of conflict. I'm inclined to think in terms of cooperation and interdependencies as a way to prevent conflicts. As such, events like that catch me kind of off guard. However, she points out that this is far from the first time that energy and conflict have become interrelated. The 1973 oil shock, the invasion of Kuwait, conflicts in the Middle East, and past tensions between Russia and Ukraine and between Russia and the EU all show the strategic importance of energy and the potential for it to be used as a political tool or foreign policy weapon. Thomas Freulich of our Department of War Studies says history shows that being dependent on others for your energy does not necessarily disadvantage you. And so we should not dismiss the positive benefits of energy interdependence based purely on the events of the last few months. We talk about the energy security trilemma. So we need energy availability, that means we, we need to actually get to the energy sources. Uh, we need uh, price security, so we need to get the energy at, at a cost that is affordable. And the third point is sustainability. We need energy to be not, not too detrimental to the planet and also social structures. Historically, there has been a focus on supply security, so we need to get access to energy. And this is been on the back seat a bit for the past 10 years, but now with the crisis, with Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, this line of thought is coming back now again. The worry behind it is that we as consumers, as, as the West, as industrialized countries, we could be too dependent on producers. That is actually historically incorrect. 
resource producing countries have been much more negatively affected than the importing the consuming countries. However, that obviously does not help us in this current situation, but I think it is important to keep that perspective. In international relations and in international relations scholarship, the so-called liberal school suggests that interdependence creates stability. And this argument has been bashed front, left, right and center in the last few months because it seems like the interdependence between especially the European Union and Russia. So the European Union depends on Russian gas while Russia depends on the European money. It seems like that this interdependence did not create the peaceful stability that we were hoping it would. I would be careful to make such a judgment based on this one case. I think it is true that the assumption that interdependence creates stability might look like a misjudgment now. I think overall, the jury is still out to assess whether this claim holds true in historical and global terms. In the short run, I think Russia's war in Ukraine is actually a human catastrophe and we should do our best to try and stop it, but not with our personal energy interests in mind. I asked Kalina what the war could mean for Russia in its standing as an energy superpower. She says that as things are still dynamic and changing, we can only speculate on the full implications. But it is clear many will be reluctant to trust Russia in future. One thing is almost certain, though. I think Russia's credibility as a reliable supplier is damaged. Uh, even if peace is restored and sanctions are lifted, the EU-Russia energy relationship will not be reversed back to what it is. Um, the overall perceptions of insecurity and Russia as a threat would not vanish uh, from the collective memory in Europe quickly. That would maybe only be the case if a, a radical regime change takes place in Russia. What would be interesting to keep an eye on following the news, how uh, in terms of understanding what will be the impact on Russia's place on the international industry stage will be to what extent sanctions would impact its the development of its LNG and hydrogen strategies. Those are key for its future as an energy uh, superpower and maybe also keeping an eye on the relationship between China and Russia and to what extent China will be interested to continue or deepen its cooperation with Russia. Isabel Hilton, a visiting professor at our Lao China Institute, says China and Russia's complicated history suggests that this may be an uneasy relationship. They haven't always been friends. They have often been on the wrong side of, or on opposite sides of, of important issues, including conflicts. So there is, at the moment, we're in rather a, a positive moment for Russia-China relations. But I think on both sides, there are a lot of lingering suspicions that it's not entirely a relationship of trust. Uh, so, so I think that China would not wish to become too dependent on Russian supplies. Um, although if Russia loses its other markets, it's a mutual dependence. So to Russia, which has nothing else to sell, would be highly dependent on Chinese demand. And China would be highly dependent on Russian supply. Neither would be comfortable with this situation. Um, each would be would be conscious of the potential for blackmail. The other problem is physical. The gas that Russia supplies to Europe comes from, you know, European Russia. And so you can't just switch that to China unless you're prepared to build 3000 miles of pipeline. Um, now, is Gazprom prepared to do that? I'm not sure it really is, because 
if China's uh, energy transition goes as planned, that pipeline would have a relatively short life. You know, the return on investment is not at all guaranteed. And it's a very expensive thing to do. So the the gas that Russia does supply to China comes from Siberia. And there's a long discussion, and it has gone on for a long time, about a second pipeline from Siberia into China. And again, you know, there are geostrategic arguments about that too. The quickest way is through Mongolia, which is what Gazprom wants to do. China doesn't want a pipeline to go through Mongolia because, you know, it's another vulnerability. So they oppose that. So th this is why these contracts are very complicated to negotiate. And, you know, China has a Russian pipeline pretty much as a direct result of the of the first round of sanctions against Russia. So when, when Russia was sanctioned for its earlier excursions um, into Ukraine, uh, it needed new markets and China got a better price that than had been on the table. Um, so that was the beginning of the contract. So there are direct relationships, but it's not an infinitely elastic situation. So, yes, we will see more um, Russian energy going to China, but we won't see China taking up the whole scale of the European market. She points out that the dominance of coal in China's energy mix is in part due to national security, as it has plenty of its own reserves. China has to import a lot of its energy, gas and oil in, in particular. Some forms of coal uh, came, which uh, coking coal for the steel industry, which came from Australia till there was a political row. The vulnerability of China's imported energy has been a headache for China's um, security establishment for a long time because most of it uh, comes by sea. And it has to come through the Malacca Straits, which is a famous choke point, which in the event of a serious conflict, it could close. It would be a big problem for Japan, by the way, as well. But China looks at this and thinks, you know, and sees vulnerability. So we've seen a, an extensive program of pipeline building, for example, to try to mitigate those risks. But there's also, there will always be a risk in imported energy. You can build more storage, you can, as I say, try to diversify your supply, but eventually, you know, you come back to that risk. And when the geopolitical um, atmosphere is as bad as it is now, then, of course, those risks move up the agenda as security becomes a dominant thought and you tend to hang on to what you've got. Interdependence creates uh, security if there's trust, but I think that's what's lacking. Uh, China has, has never, it doesn't, for example, like military alliances for similar reasons. As well as affecting global security, our energy choices also have huge implications for our planet's future. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change found that fossil fuels and industry accounted for 89% of global CO2 emissions in 2018. And despite our commitments to tackle global warming and move to more renewable sources, we are still relying on fossil fuels such as oil, gas and coal to meet around 80% of our global energy needs. Here's Thomas, whose work focuses on the geopolitical implications of the global energy transition to explain more. 
The world is still highly dependent on fossil fuels. The fossil fuels industry is one of the biggest industries on the planet. If you look at the 20 largest companies in the world, at least five of them are oil and gas companies. I recently read that actually 40% of global shipping is just to ship around fossil fuels. I asked him if we're making any positive progress on reducing our dependency, given that we also need to tackle climate change. So the good news is that efforts are being made to reduce CO2 emissions on a global level. The bad news is that emissions are still rising, but they are rising more slowly, especially in the industrialized countries in the global north. We have strong commitments to phase out uh, fossil fuels and thereby uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, in the near future. The so-called carbon and emissions intensity of the economy has been declining since its peak in the late 1990s. That means we in the industrialized countries require fewer fossil fuels and emit less carbon by producing the same amount of, of wealth and GDP. So the really good news is that we have to a certain degree gotten on a road where welfare and wealth do not have to come with these bad environmental outcomes through greenhouse gas emissions. So what are the alternatives to fossil fuels? And what are the challenges to them being adopted? So first of all, it is really, really difficult to replace structures that have grown over almost two centuries, uh, like the oil industry. But we have, we as Humanity and society have tried different ideas um, over the past 20 or so years. And I, I want to talk about four ideas in particular. One is degrowth, the idea that um, we need to grow less as an economy, as a global economy, or maybe not at all, or maybe even shrink our economy and redistribute the wealth that has already been created. Well, I think that is a really interesting intellectual exercise. I highly doubt that this idea finds a political majority at this point. The second idea is electrification. We have an example from the early 2000s about that, the so-called Desert Tech Initiative. The idea was to create massive amounts of solar energy in North Africa and transport that via massive cables to the European electricity consumers. It was a private initiative and it in the end failed because it was overwhelmed by regulatory aspects and, and in the end the political events of the Arab Spring brought it to a halt. Recently there have been attempts to revive this desert tech initiative and we'll, we'll see if they have managed to come around these these issues the third example that i would like to point out is the bioeconomy and in my research i've spent a lot of time looking into the case of brazil's ethanol diplomacy and brazil's international ethanol strategy ethanol is a type of alcohol that can be produced uh, by growing wheat or uh, corn or in the Brazilian case, sugarcane. It is interesting in the Brazilian case that Brazil actually was able to substitute 40% of its transport fuel with ethanol. And since it worked so well for Brazil domestically, they tried to promote that globally as a low carbon energy option and 
more so even as an as a development mo model for the global south one of the case studies in my book looks at how brazil was trying to help mozambique to develop an area the size of germany into a biofuels production industry the problem with the Brazilian model was that it was too state driven. There was not enough buy in from the private sector. And when Brazil hit a double crisis, on the one hand, political troubles, and on the other hand, bad harvests uh, that required it to import ethanol, the initiative completely lost attraction to the partners predominantly in the global south. The fourth example is the hydrogen economy. And we see this being carried out right now in front of our eyes. Hydrogen plays a, an enormous role within the European Green Deal, where the European Union wants to make hydrogen the central fuel for energy storage, for transport and for industrial uses. The idea behind it is to use excess electricity in the 1970s based on nuclear energy, but nowadays obviously based on renewable energy like wind power or solar power to create hydrogen. And we can create hydrogen by splitting up water with an electric current and thereby storing the energy in the form of hydrogen. Very similarly to Brazil's ethanol strategy, the EU, with Germany as the lead country, is trying to create a global market for hydrogen. The initiative is called H2 Global. And within this initiative, the state, both Germany, but also the EU, offer a regulatory framework. They offer initial investments and also securities for further investments by the private sector. So the idea behind it is to leverage private investment uh, by, by giving a, a secure framework, both in terms of regulation, but also in terms of investment. And so far, it seems promising, but it remains to be seen whether it will work. He says it's very difficult to get away from using fossil fuels to create energy because of the structures and processes we already have in place. Think about it on the individual level. We all know that we could use more environmentally friendly modes of transport or change the heating in our homes, but do we really make our whole effort? And moving upwards towards the state level, there are tax revenues, employment, and infrastructure related to fossil fuel industries. How do we deal with this if the tax revenues break down, if we let go of all these people who work in fossil fuel related industries? And what about the legacy infrastructure, for example, the gas grid? And on the global level, we can see that a lot of developing countries actually depend on the revenue of fossil fuel production. So would it be fair to cut them off these revenues in the short term? I, it's, it's a very hard problem. And I think what is also really important, what a lot of people don't think about that much is that there's this financial layer that actually, from my point of view, is the hardest one to break. So pension funds and large public investors have financial stakes in the oil and gas industry. And that, that makes it a lot harder to, 
to move these huge sums of money, we're talking billions and trillions, to alternative investments. So it is really hard, but at the same time, we also should recognize that impressive changes have already been been achieved with the, the whole movement and the financial industry of ESG investing and that recognizes the importance of environmental, social and governance standards for their investments. So changes have been made, but I fear probably not fast enough at this point, but the pace of change is only going to accelerate. Kalina has explored the potential of Iran to emerge as an energy superpower and some of the opportunities and challenges of this. The growing isolation of Russia is triggering shifts in the power balance on the international energy stage as a whole. For example, Qatar's importance for Europe uh, might grow. Um, Iran is an interesting case uh, in this respect. It is usually ranked as the second largest gas reserves holder in the world only after Russia. However, despite its vast gas reserves, Iran um, imported gas from Turkmenistan, for example. This is due to the relatively underdeveloped gas sector infrastructure and vast domestic consumption and flaring. Additionally, although Iran is linked to Turkey via gas pipeline, um, overall it lacks well-developed gas sector export infrastructure, both in terms of pipelines, export pipelines, and LNG, liquefied natural gas terminals. That is due to many reasons, including lack of technology and foreign investments caused by the years, decades of sanctions. So lifting of sanctions for Iran would not mean uh, an immediate flooding of gas on, on the market. And when we think in this regard, when we think about Iran, we should think about the oil market first, because there it has more potential to have an immediate impact. Overall, the development of Iranian oil and gas potential depends very much on the terms that the government would offer to foreign companies once sanctions are lifted. There are a lot of other factors. It's not simply lifting the sanctions. That will uh, increase oil supply almost immediately. But to ramp up, to even be close to what Russia is uh, in terms of gas, that means a lot of investments, a lot of development, money, new contracts, domestic environment for foreign investments, etc. So uh, we cannot expect it to suddenly substitute Russian gas, I think. When it comes to energy needs and the tension between these and global climate commitments, Many eyes look to China, as Isabel outlines. China is just so big. China is you know, the world's largest everything. It's the world's largest consumer of, of energy. It's the world's largest importer of, of, of oil. It's the world's largest consumer of coal by a long way. It's the world's biggest emitter and so on and so on. So you, you simply can't resolve this without China. So China all, is always in the frame um, and, no, you know, not always in a good way. She points out that when it comes to emissions, it is important to think about the role of other countries, too. I mean, China's big. It attracts the attention. But the United States per capita emissions, their annual per capita, is 17 tonnes. Ours are five. China's are seven. Hey, you know. <laughs> she founded China Dialogue in 2006 and realised that climate change should be the key focus of its work. At the time in 
Beijing, there was a dialogue of the deaf going on, really. In, in Beijing, people would say, why should we constrain our development by limiting our energy consumption when the West's historic emissions are many times higher than ours and the per capita emissions are many times higher than ours? And in um, in New York or in London, people would say, what's the point of trying to do anything about climate change when China is building a coal-fired power station kind of every 10 minutes? Um, so it was just about finger pointing. It wasn't making any progress. And there was a lot of either willful or non-willful misunderstanding. Since then, the organisation has worked to increase understanding between China and the rest of the world and create a platform for cooperation. When China wanted to fuel its economic growth, it turned to its huge reserves of coal, which at one point accounted for more than 70% of its primary energy source. The initial reliance on coal was is really about availability. It is the one fuel, fossil fuel, that China has in uh, absolute abundance. China would never run out of coal. And so, of course, coal was um, was exploited uh, when China's energy demand started to rise. The problem then is that you have a system uh, which is so heavily reliant on coal that it becomes hard to change um, because you've designed it around that. What China has committed to is reaching carbon neutrality by 2060 and for its emissions to peak by 2030 or earlier. And Isabel says these are both important goals to keep global average warming below 1.5 degrees. She says that despite these challenges, China has made progress, but not at the pace required. Unfortunately, China isn't doing that well on the short-term goals. The 2030 pledge was actually on the table in Paris uh, in 2015, so it hasn't really moved very much. And it, even then, it was regarded as a fairly loose ambition uh, and there is a you know in China in the Chinese political system it is better to make a, um, a, a to have a target that you know you can meet so a fairly soft target rather than to set an ambitious target which you might fail to meet. Looking to the longer term China has carried out a lot of scenario planning with Chinese think tanks and others who advise the government looking at ways to phase down use of coal but Isabel says this needs to progress faster if China's to meet its 2060 goal. On a more positive note, China also has initiatives to improve energy efficiency and has invested heavily in low carbon technologies, including electric vehicles, although this does come with consequences. So when China decides to do something like that, it can move very quickly. So we will see um, clearly oil use will fall if if transport goes electric, but at the same time, electricity demand increases. So how you generate your electricity becomes even more important in the mix. And at the moment, that is still heavily uh, coal fired. So this is why we always come back to coal and we always come back to the speed um, with which China can get off coal. And that's pretty complicated right now. She says it involves huge changes to the energy grid and the market, especially given the current contracts, which can work against greater use of renewable energy sources. It means redesigning existing systems and structures, which is complicated. I asked her how, given China's energy needs are still growing, 
it can balance its demand for energy with climate change commitments. China's energy needs will continue to grow as long as the economy continues to grow. I mean, everything an economy does, you know, demands energy of some sort. That said, um, China's energy needs are growing more slowly than they, they did. The, I mean, the really rapid expansion in China's energy needs uh, came in the years um, from the beginning of um, reform and opening Deng Xiaoping, so the early 90s, let's say, through joining the WTO and so on, until maybe five or six years ago, when the Chinese efforts to to recalibrate the economy away from heavy industry and towards a you know smarter, cleaner, more efficient economy. That process will have to continue because China can't go on uh, and, and, and is not planning to go on um, with an economy the shape that it was in the catch-up phase. She says its decision to build new coal-fired power stations is inexplicable. And although there might be plans to use them to balance the grid through retrofitting, this is highly complex. China's also financed and built new coal-fired power stations as part of its belt and road activities. This is a global infrastructure development strategy through which it invests in other countries and international organisations. However, uh, last UN General Assembly, Xi Jinping announced that China would no longer build uh, new coal on the Belt and Road. And that was partly because uh, I think China was getting a little embarrassed about constantly, you know, other countries had stopped financing coal and host countries were beginning to cancel contracts, partly because of popular opposition, but also the understanding that if you build a new coal fire power station now, you're either locking yourself into a high emissions uh, trajectory for 30 years, or you close it down early, in which case it's it's, it's effectively a stranded asset from, from the word go. And you are delaying the kind of transition that you need. There was another part to the announcement, which I think is more important, and I hope gets, um, gets fulfilled, which was China pledging that as a development actor, which it now is, um, it would support the development of renewable energy in host countries. And that's really important. For all the technical reasons, you know, it's more complicated to build a renewables grid. It's not more expensive anymore, but it's, you need a different set of expertise and you need, you know, you need help to do it. If China were to do that, that would be a massive contribution. China's already made a contribution, I should say, by lowering the cost of renewables. When China started to invest around the time of the 12th five-year plan, because China has this enormous capacity to manufacture at scale, it brought the price down. So for all of us who have solar panels on our roofs, you know, China's made that cheaper. Here in the UK, Thomas has looked at ways we could combine economic growth with transitioning to alternative and sustainable energy sources. There are opportunities as well in the transition to a low carbon industry and a low carbon economy. Ideally, that would happen bottom up. So start with training a new workforce for renewable energy uh, investments and in, in better buildings, etc. But in the UK, unfortunately, the consumer has comparatively little power. So from my point of view, it depends on the industry and especially again, the financial industry to make these changes 
really accelerate. And wind energy is a great example in the United Kingdom. The industry made big investments that pay off and because they need the workforce, they retrain people. But that being said, and the UK, I think to a certain degree suffers from that, there are many legacy networks. So for example, the gas grid, what are we going to do with the gas grid? The gas grid in the UK is very developed and very tightly knit. So the question that we as a society need to ask ourselves is, do we really want to transition away from, from an infrastructure that already exists and for example, build a new electricity infrastructure, or do we repurpose the infrastructure that we already have? So from my point of view, what is lacking is a vision for society or at least some sort of societal dialogue, how we will set up the future energy system in the UK. He says this could be part of the so-called levelling up agenda of the UK government. In especially in the north of the country and also in Wales, in the economically not so strong areas, there are large industrial spaces that remain unused at this point in time. And these could be revived, um, be it through wind energy, be it through energy storage solutions. One interesting project near Manchester tries to store energy in old coal mine shaft, uh, which is really interesting. I think these are opportunities that need to be taken advantage of with both investment in, in research in those areas, but also uh, by training a new workforce that can actually deliver the, the rollout of renewable energy and energy storage solutions. So how hopeful should we be about our ability to adapt our world to meet our energy needs and tackle the climate crisis? Isabel says cooperation is key and currently tensions are high. Progress through the United Nations process is slow and she says we need more networks of cooperation and for businesses to move faster too. If we had a better uh, set of relationships, we could, for example, build a global carbon market. We could, we could pledge to make all development aid Paris compliant. Um, we could extend the networks that exist. Those, those city networks are, are very important. We could agree common standards and rules for finance and investment, which would extend, for example, the discussion of the taxonomy of green investments that did go on between the European Union and China. There are all sorts of mechanisms within within trade agreements, within uh, or, you know um, development agreements and cooperative agreements, uh, which we we could focus on. But I right now, that's really quite difficult. It's not that the, there are there is no shortage of ideas, but the circumstances are, are not particularly favourable. She says there has been progress, such as the accelerated programme following COP26 in Glasgow. However, other events can quickly push it back down the agenda, such as President Putin's invasion of Ukraine or the global pandemic. She says steady political commitment, plus finance and determination, will be needed to bring about real change. We have the technology. We have the capability. But it demands political will to execute this change in our energy systems. And frankly, 
I don't see the kind of leadership we need at the political level right now. So I'm optimistic that it can be done. I'm optimistic actually about global public opinion. I think the youth movement is fantastic. The louder they shout, the better. The more they demonstrate and make life awkward, um, the better. Because without that, you know, the pressure does ease on politicians. Um, I, so I'm optimistic that we can do it. I am just not so optimistic about whether we will do it, which is ridiculous. Kalina also thinks there are many things that can be done on a global and individual level to speed up the energy transition, but they involve not just trying to keep the world as it is. These things that we do at the moment are motivated by our idea to preserve the world order as we know it. In other ways, to mitigate uh, the negative impact of climate change on the world order as we know it. A comprehensive transition, however, I think would actually require destroying the order that uh, we know and rebuild a new one that entirely differently interacts with energy, redefines how we, how we interact with energy. She says that there will be long-term benefits of moving swiftly away from fossil fuels, but much of society is reluctant to do this because we're incentivized to prioritise our immediate concerns. So, because of the potential short-term impacts there might be on business and individuals, or concerns about regime security or a political party's re-election chances, energy transition is moving at a gradual rather than radical pace. Thomas also thinks that we need systemic change, but there are things that we as individuals can do. We can cycle to work, we can use public transport, we can look into switching to a renewable energy provider, or get a smart meter. In the UK, you can right now get a smart meter for free. In the financial sector, we need to demand that institutions divest from fossil fuels. For example, the big pension funds. Everyone in the UK who has some sort of pension can demand this from their pension fund. And on the political level, we really need to stop subsidizing the fossil fuel industry in order to get change and we need to use taxes in a smart way and use that money to invest in renewable infrastructure. Looking to the future, he does feel optimistic. We already have seen a large shift in public opinion towards in, or in favor of renewable energies. If we look at the UK's energy mix, wind power is one of the most important sources right now. So while the pace at which we're going is not fast enough at this point, the path that we're following is the right one. And I am confident that within the next few years, we will see the pace accelerate to the level needed. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series. <laughs>